1: This
2: is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a lot on the program today. Our one guest, Congressman Ro Khanna will be with us, taking your calls, A Progressive National Town Hall meeting with him. Also I just got a note from Indivisible, Indivisible Indivisible.org, I signed up a long time ago and And, of course, they come on this program from time to time to bring us up to date on what they're doing. They have a new campaign. It's called Let's Go Joe. And they are asking the Biden administration to do two things. This campaign is designed to pressure them to do two things. It's kind of a break from the whole Ukraine thing. Uh, There's other stuff going on as well. And the first is they're asking the Biden administration to declare a national climate emergency. This would allow the president, they write, to mobilize our nation's resources on a massive scale to transition to clean, renewable energy and create millions of good paying, green jobs. And then secondly, they're asking to cancel all federal student debt. He said, that, well, this would give much needed economic relief to 45 million Americans holding more than one point eight trillion dollars in debt while we deal with the highest inflation in half a century in the on the heels of a worldwide pandemic. And uh, you can you know get the whole the whole let's go Joe campaign over at, uh, uh, at indivisible.org, so check it out. All righty, let's pick up your phone calls here. Alex in Houston. Hey, Alex, what's on your mind today?
3: Hey, Tom, good to talk to you today. Thank um, you. Yes, I um, wanted to tell you a little story, then I have a, an idea, and then I have a question for you. Okay. Be quick. Um, first, the story. Actually, let me say this. Let me preface all this, I do su- I'm very much a leftist, I'm against war, but in- I do support uh, war here at a thousand percent. If any leftists want to talk to me on Twitter about that, let's go. Um, <laughs> you anyways. do
2: support what? A thousand percent? I missed the word.
3: Oh, uh, I, I, I'm, I support war. I'm with you on the... Uh, oh, yeah, I, well, I think
2: there's a difference between offensive war and defensive war.
3: I think, True. I, I, you exactly. know, I really think it's there's unjust- a difference. Yeah, it's a just war theory situation. Okay, um, okay so here's a story. I was on Nextdoor, the uh, social media app for neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And, um, Tom, I'm going to spare you all the details. Let me just say, I promise you, there has got to be a Russian agent right lurking on this next door in my neighborhood. They were too good at what they were doing with black propaganda, Russia's number one export. Not oil, black op propaganda, you know. Yeah. Um, well, it could a, be, or it could just be
2: somebody who watches Tucker Carlson. I mean, he's spouting Putin's lines every night on Fox News. I mean, but
3: Tucker doesn't. I mean, the the depth to which the mental gymnastics, to excuses that they were making, Tucker's not even going. He doesn't have the time on the air to do us. Oh. So he's got other, another, you know, other agendas to pedal yeah. too. But. It was inc- it was incredible. Um, so here's my idea. You know, cybersecurity. One of the main threats is social engineering. Mm-hmm. And um, so hopefully, with Build Back Better, there could be a little earmark for a social engineering squad in America. I would I would be great at it. I'd like to. Uh, anyone out there want to put that in the bill? That'd be great. That'd be fun to uh, you know battle these Russian bots or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's my question for you. Um, I was reading comments on YouTube for some videos about all this whole situation, and some Russian people were chiming in, and they were saying that one of the reasons this is happening is what's called, Russian sociologists called the Crimea effect, which apparently, because Putin is up for election coming up, so he's beating this war drum. To rally, you know, typical situation. Oh yeah, he was meetings. he was
2: domestically in in trouble. I mean, basically, uh-huh. uh, Alexei yeah, Navalny actually... outed his billion dollar uh, mansion and and how corrupt he was, and he put Navalny uh-huh. in prison for that.
3: So my question for you is, do you how much do you think this so-called Crimea effect that Russian sociologists talk about? How much of, how much of this has gravity in Putin's uh, um, situation? I'm, of course, Crimea has a lot of natural resources, so that's a bonus, but the election. Um, I mean, what do you think about that?
2: I don't know. I, I have not read any of these pieces about the Crimea effect that you're talking about, so I don't know specifically okay. what you're talking about. But I do yeah. know that you know political leaders have known for a long, long time that one of the best ways to get reelected is to be in a war. Richard Nixon knew that. You know, When he came into mm-hmm. office in 1968, he had promised he had a secret plan to end the war. He had actually, in fact, blown up the actual war, uh, Vietnam War end that uh, LBJ had negotiated with the, with the South Vietnamese. Nixon put, a, put the kibosh on that and committed treason. And then he kept the war going for four years so he'd get reelected you know, in 72, which he did. He, he was reelected again on the promise that he was gonna end the war. George W. Bush, in 1999, told his biographer, Mickey Herskowitz, the guy who wrote Bush's autobiography, A Charge to Keep, or at least the first draft of it, he told him that if he got elected, he was going to invade Iraq because that would be the way to have a successful presidency and, and, and you know privatize Medicare and Social Security. And by the way, Medicare is now half-privatized because of the efforts that George W. Bush did in, in uh, 2003, as I recall. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's not just Putin who knows that if he can be in a war, is people are gonna rally around him and he's gonna get reelected. Um, but uh, if that's what you're talking about, I'm with you. Alex, thanks for the call. Jim in uh, Vita, Montana. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today?
4: Yeah, uh, regarding uh, Keystone XL again? Yeah. And uh, eminent domain. Eminent domain, if uh, if they're coming through with KXL and it's um, your your land is in the way, they can use eminent domain to seize your land. Oh, that's pipeline. that's why
2: that's how they're doing it. Uh, you know, but it's only yeah, 8% constructed, a, so it's and it's been stopped. But there's an existing yeah, well, keystone a, pipeline. The XL is just the the <laughs> double size, right? The fatter version. Yeah, the well, bigger version.
4: That's a that's a for-profit foreign company, yes. TransCanada.
2: Yep. How can they use eminent domain? Well, because they've got Republican politicians who are willing to, to dance to their tune, you know. You're absolutely right. TransCanada is a, is a foreign company, but under the 2010 United States Supreme Court Citizens United decision, foreign companies can yeah. now pour money into the campaigns of American politicians, both state and federal. Yeah. And you know, yeah, TransCanada know. has been doing that. Other foreign companies and countries have been doing that and that's why we've got this weird distortion of american politics and it's and we need to get money out of politics i'm i'm with you we absolutely need to get money out of politics jim thanks for the call uh... catherine in las vegas hey catherine what's on your mind today
0: hey tom um... thank you i wanted to uh... kind of caution people against jumping on what is becoming a narrative that the only reason that we care about ukraine is because they're white, Uh, and it's been trending because of Joy Reid. And the reason I want to push back is because, first of all, a lot of the stories that they are featuring to demonstrate this. Uh, One of them had a citizen of Cameroon who was in Ukraine. One of them had a citizen of Turkey who was in Ukraine. Now, for starters, I'll tell you that my grandfather, who was a naturalized citizen who was born in Italy, every time we drove across the border to Canada, even when you didn't have to show passports, if he was with us, we got pulled aside for extra scrutiny because he was not born in the United States. When we took frequent school trips, to Canada Um, if we had an exchange student on the bus for the two years that we did and she was a beautiful blonde white girl from Europe we still got pulled aside they had to go inside show paperwork etc so people who are not citizens of the country they are fleeing from are always subject to extra scrutiny and now if we want to make a comparison from Ukraine to say Syria or Afghanistan we're talking about a Western democracy that is not um, um, historically against the United States, that does not have state-sponsored terror organization, that does not have religious sectarian violence, of which a majority of the people crossing the border are, are middle-class, um, educated, literate people versus poor, underdeveloped, um, you know, can't read and write, there are hundreds and hundreds of factors that make some people get through borders quicker than others. And because of the fact that we are having problems with race in our country that are historic problems that we need to deal with, that uh, there's a lot of people that are quick to try to unfairly boil everything down to it's about race. And there's so much more going on than that, not to mention the fact that, that they are, you know, this is a direct threat to NATO allies, whereas a conflict happening, you know, a, a thousand miles away is not. Yeah. So um, we, need to, we need to be careful the way that we frame issues, even though, yes, I'm not saying that race is never a factor. I'm just saying that it's way more complicated than
2: that. Yeah, I, I think your point is well taken, Catherine. But we also have to acknowledge that there is racism and there's, there's racism in Ukraine just like there is here. Um, but I, 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 my sense of it is that the identification that Americans feel with Ukrainians being different than we did with, for example, Iraqis or Syrians, uh, doesn't have to do with the color of the skin. It has to do with the fact that they fought for their democracy. We saw that on television. We saw them fighting back. It's a democratic nation. I could be wrong, but Catherine, thank you for the call. to
1: Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
2: Speaking for myself, that's my sense of identification. It's not a racial one, although, I, you know, I get it that we're all, that's boiling underneath all of us. Charles in Portland. Hey, Charles, what's up?
1: Hey, Tom, hope you're enjoying this beautiful, stunning day in Portland.
2: It was spectacular. I walked into work today. It was so beautiful. The sun is out. It, it was only 39 degrees, but it's a beautiful morning.
1: So what's well, up? And I'm walking along by a creek and everything. I, yep. I tell you, my, uh, my knowledge of the Korean War essentially extends to MASH, but uh, um, I think we may be looking at a situation like that, um, where the U.S. and China... We're fighting a war, uh, and both of them looking the other way and saying, oh, it's a police action, and we're not fighting China. Right. Um, and that face-saving thing that you're, you've mentioned about Putin, that he has to have some way to back down, maybe that's kind of it, is that they di- diplomatically smile and call it something else. You know, we're sending planes, we're arming them, we're not fighting, but yeah. we're letting other people use our weapons to fight, and it's just its a war. Under a different name, but it gives us both an out that we don't have to say, or well, Putin doesn't have to say hey i I'm at war, I'm gonna have to use nukes, and we don't have to to do that it's the uh it keeps nato from having to go in it keeps yeah. uh it, it's gonna be a long bloody thing, but he's he's grabbed hold of the tiger's tail, and that's kinda where we are you know we we can't let him go forward uh we can't be unresponsive to it that the West can't be. Um, but yet maybe it's it's the function of diplomacy you know is, is just to call war something different and yeah. that may be police, what we're looking at.
2: Yeah, a, a special military operation is what they're calling it during the Korean <laughs> yeah. War. It was a police action during Vietnam, in fact. You know, it was never a declared war. It was also a police action,
1: technically. Yeah, you just, I mean, it's different language because yeah. it obligates you to different things. You <laughs> know, when they say Article Five has been invoked, it's, you know, it, has somebody war. really been attacked?
2: Yeah, then it's war. But, but uh, you know, what I'm wondering is, you've got the Russian Foreign Ministry saying, all we really want is the eastern regions then you've you know is this an opening diplomatic you know are they dangling something diplomatic and if they do work something out if we do say okay or if the Ukrainians do say I mean at the end of the day I think to a certain extent this is up to Zelensky say okay you can have Donbass and you can keep Crimea just give us our country back and get the hell out at that point does the United States pull back on its sanctions of Russia you know, I, I just don't know the answer to that question, but it's... I, mean, I would
1: think it would have to be almost. I mean, you'd have to have something that is given in return.
2: Well, then, um, you know, who pays to repair, uh, you know, Ukraine? I mean, who, who rebuilds the uh, country? Who, who, who I, obviously, many of these families can never be made whole. You're going to have, you know, children, multi-generational trauma as a result of this. Um, you've got, you know, thousands of deaths across Ukraine. Um, hundreds of probably hundreds of billions of dollars of property damage that's happened already i mean this is what happens in wars um, who's going to pick yeah. up the tab for that this is this is you know i mean I, it, it's going to get complicated and and russia's going to continue bombing as much as they can and this is why i think we need to get those planes in the air to say no uh, putin keeps threatening <laughs> nuclear war he says oh yeah your your economic sanctions are are warfare Right. And, and and before that, it was, you know, basically everything we've already done is a, is a form of warfare. And but I don't think he's going to do it. Well, I, you know, it's,
1: well, maybe it's just, you know, we'd be looking at it differently if Crimea wasn't already in the rearview mirror. Yeah, And, you know, they said, well, you can have Crimea and we're all going to be quiet about it and just uh, uh, just look the other way. And he learned yeah and he's trying the same thing here yeah, So we, i think we don't I think have much of a choice but to be engaged
2: yeah i think right now uh, putin is the dog that caught the car right he's got his jaw on the bumper and not quite sure what to do next except run the old playbook and, and the old playbook is not working for him uh charles thank you for the call uh, a very thoughtful call on a beautiful morning here in portland what's up next Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind today? Hi,
1: I just wanted to bring up a very old idea that Roosevelt and Churchill cooked up. Uh, Churchill was begging for armaments and help. They, the the war was raging. you were talking land beating.
6: Yeah. I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm Forget my interrupting. You. Finish your thought here,
2: Sandra. Me? Sandra. I've had too much coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive me. Go ahead and start over again. It's fine.
1: Tell we us. didn't sell them anything. We just kind of loaned them some stuff and said, well, we'll take it back after the war. You know, That's we're right. not in this war. We're just going to loan you some things. And I think we could do the same thing with Ukraine. I think we could actually have a, a bunch of F-16s
0: just kind of show up and say, we're kind of running low on gas. You know, there's a gas shortage now. And uh, could we land on on your airport? And <laughs>
2: Just kind of. I, you know, I, I think there, if, it, if it was F-15s or F-35s or whatever they are, that would be extremely problematic. But you've got Poland now saying, we have I think they said that they have 28 old MiG fighters that are in great condition. These are the yeah. exact same planes that the Ukrainian pilots trained on. They know how to fly them. They don't know how to fly American planes. And the Ukrainian pilots can climb aboard and, and you know refuel them and take off from from Germany and do what they want. And the United States has said, no, I don't think we're going to do that. And I'm I'm saying I think we should. But there was a piece of mm-hmm. legislation. Uh, I you know I wrote an op-ed about this two weeks ago. There was a piece of legislation that passed the House of Representatives that had lend-lease in it. It was it was re- reprising the lend-lease of of Churchill and Roosevelt yeah. that allowed. American military uh, suppliers and the U.S. military itself to lend or lease weaponry to the Ukrainians, including aircraft. Right. It was stopped, it passed the House, it was stopped by a filibuster by the Republicans in the Senate. So that didn't happen. Yeah, of course. You know, we've got a fifth column in this country. But I still think that a lot of this could be done. Sandra, thank you for the call, and my apologies for stepping on you when you first started talking. Scotty in Seattle. Hey, Scotty, what's on your mind?
0: I uh, just had a feeling about Ukraine and fighting Russians
7: because we have a kind of a parallel with uh,
0: Chamberlain appeasing Hitler. Am I saying that right? Yes. And so was.
2: Nineteen thirty-eight. Uh, we have peace in, in our time.
0: Nineteen thirty-eight. What was he considered an appeaser beef? Hitler continued to move on? No, he was
2: celebrated as a hero when he came back and and said, you know, we have have negotiated peace in our time. Everybody thought Hitler was going to stop with, uh, you know, the Sudetenland, Austria, and Czechoslovakia. And, of course, it didn't work out that way. He invaded Poland in, in September, I think it was September 1st, 1939, if I'm remembering correctly.
0: So I just had this weird feeling that in the future, us trying to stop World War III might turn out to look like some kind of appeasement, and, but I don't have any, any can't cite my doors source or anything. Yeah, it's just, just
2: a feeling. It's the problem, we can't see the future, you know, but we can see the past yeah. and we can see that when madmen dictators who are trying to reassemble empire or create empire get part way down the road, they don't stop. I mean, that's the lesson in uh-huh. history, whether whether it was Napoleon, whether it was, uh, you know, a multiple of the Caesars. I mean, you could go back and, and find three or four of them, you know, <laughs> that, that were very much like that. Or, you know, whether whether it was uh, Hitler or whether in this case it was Putin. They just don't stop until somebody gives them a bloody nose until somebody stops them. And frankly, I yep. think that's what it's going to take. Scotty, thanks for the call. Greg in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Greg, what's on your mind today?
5: Yeah. Hey, Tom. Thanks uh, for taking the call. And uh, I've been working in the uh, exploration for about forty years. Just wanted to comment on oil exploration. Yes, Mm -hmm. and wanted to uh, comment on the the cost of producing um, um, oil or liquids. Uh, Primarily, right now, it's coming from the development wells and the unconventional plays of tight rocks in West Texas and North Dakota. You're talking fracking. Well, a horizontal and then that completion is a hydraulic fracturing. There's okay. still completions of, uh, Height of uh, hydrochloric acid and perfing also is another form of completion. But anyway, uh, after the drilling, they do do hydraulic fracturing. The, there is still dry holes. There are many of the wells that are non-commercial. So that's the so the average cost for those kinds of uh, producing wells are in the forty to fifty dollar range. But you're absolutely right. I think the best way to go for uh, getting some of this revenue back is the um, windfall profits tax. On these companies, because even at forty to fifty dollar range, they're making way, way over what any kind of cost uh, and dry hole exploration that's that's involved in this. So yeah, really they're that-
2: selling it today for one hundred thirty dollars a barrel.
5: <laughs> yes, absolutely, really? absolutely, yeah. And, and then one other comment on the Keystone Pipeline, and this is all public info on their business plan. The Canadian Pipeline Company. They wanted to go to Houston because it's a tax-free export terminal. And absolutely, you're right. Uh, most of that oil is going to be exported to foreign countries, and a small is a small percentage will be going to make diesel for, for trucks. But the other interesting thing that they often is not mentioned is that that uh, thick Uh, tar sand to get flowing in that pipeline they have to mix it with a lighter crude, and and where they're going to get that is from North Dakota. So to get that flowing from all the way from Canada to Houston, they have to mix it with a lighter crude, and they're and the they, in their business plan, they use North Dakota crude, which means that the North Dakota crude that's available for the Midwest, there's going to be less of it for the people. So the people in the Midwest are going to be paying a higher price because some of their crude is now tied up in the pipeline.
2: Which is so, going to Houston, which is going for export.
5: Absolutely. That's right. So if if people want to pay extra to a Canadian pipeline to ship that crude, then that's fine. As long as they know they're paying to subsidize a Canadian pipeline company. It's yeah. just outrageous. Yeah. Anyways. It
2: really is. Greg, thank you for sharing your expertise with yeah. us. I, I, okay. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Keno in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Keno, how, the, how are the moose doing? Uh,
4: for the moose herder agenda, yes. Tom, your program is a conduit for good. I wanted to present now for the world. Should be aware there is a man in Russia that can end the madness and end the grief. I have a master's degree in human resource development, what used to be cost personnel management. And I study people's ability for certain jobs. In Russia, General Sergei Shoigu. Oh, you're talking their defense secretary, isn't he? Excuse me?
2: Is he their defense secretary or their equivalent of the head of the Pentagon?
4: Yeah, he's he's a defense secretary. Now, he was never a professional soldier. He trained as a civil engineer, and he worked as the emergency management boss for years. He's very popular right. in Russia for helping yeah. people when disasters happen, That's you know, floods and all that. So he's very popular. And, and Now, he was in on the planning for this, but he's a man that can understand that you learn from mistakes. Uh, Grandpa Vlad has gone mad. He cannot... Vlad... Putin cannot learn from the mistakes, so let the whole world pray for General Sho- Shoigu to, to end this madness, end the grief. We can pray for him. Let's raise his names and, and say, Shoigu, save the world. Yeah. Put Putin in a straitjacket.
2: Well, right now, he's directing the attack on Ukraine. Um,
4: yeah, but he, if he learns, he can a mistake.
2: But, but yeah, he, it's, it's entirely possible, and I've read several articles in, in foreign policy Uh, uh, you know, uh, publications suggesting that he might be a hope for Russia. There's also speculation that Putin will put him on a show trial, that if Putin does not prevail in Ukraine, or if he does prevail and the price of prevailing is so high that he's facing an Afghanistan-style insurgency and they're shipping home, you know, hundreds of Russian soldiers every day in body bags, Uh, that Shoigu is the guy that he's going to put on trial for execution.
4: Let's ask the whole human family on the planet to pray. Let's ask the whole, can you hear me? I can. Let's hear, ask the whole human family to pray that General Sh- Shoigu uh, ends the madness yeah. and 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 and, and well, bring I, his I, name up and pray for him because this is madness that's taking place. So let us raise up his name and call upon him and let the whole world vote for him. I get it. To be the I, new get it. Leader I get in it. Yeah, I get it, Kino. Yeah,
2: pray for peace. I'm with you. Pray for peace, Kino. Thank you for the call. And I don't mean that glibly. I actually believe prayer has impact. I believe thought has impact. Everything you see around you is pretty much the product of somebody's thought. And welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading an excerpt from Robert Wolfe's book, Original Wisdom, Stories of an Ancient Way of Knowing. I wrote the foreword for it. Robert Wolfe died in Hawaii. Louise and I visited him there a number of times. He was in his 90s. And back in the 1950s, he was an anthropologist and sociologist who had been hired by the Malaysian government to figure out why this one particular aboriginal tribe, the Senoi who lived deep inside the jungle, hunting-gathering tribe, why they were, quote, lazy, why they were unwilling to work in the rubber plantations. And he got to know them, and he discovered that their view of the world was completely different than ours. And that's essentially what this book is about, and it's absolutely a mind-boggling book. I'll share a little This is from the middle of the book. This is page 86. It's uh, Finally, he's reached the point where they'll let him sleep in the village with them. He says, in time, I grew to know them better. But it was when I began to overnight in their villages that I learned that they literally lived in another reality. When it became dark, people huddled together for warmth and companionship. In the tropics, there's no long period of dusk. It grows dark quickly. The air would become cool, and people would move closer together, reaching out, touching a neighbor, perhaps holding hands. Women might run their fingers through the hair of the person sitting next to them during the nights I stayed over they would often gather around me and have me ask them questions then they would ask me questions very quietly and softly our being together was not like other social situations I'd ever experienced we talked but softly they did not know how to compete for attention a few words now and then were all that were spoken a question or a comment a simple answer long silences sometimes someone would have some tobacco and light a cigarette a tobacco rolled into a leaf which was passed around the group People might ask each other whether they had noticed that particularly bright patch of sunlight on the side of the river, behind a certain tree, or if they had noticed that large yellow bird that sang in the morning. Evening was a time of reflection, of gentle communication, of being together. I never knew their blood relationships, but evening times felt like family. As it grew later, one of the people would get up to go, going to one of the houses, more often little more than lean-tos or rickety huts on stilts, and fall asleep. Eventually each of us had found an empty spot on the floor of one of the shelters and wrapped in our sarongs, we huddled close to whoever else slept in that house that night. The houses did not belong to anyone. It seemed that each of the four or five little shelters was for all the people living in that settlement at that moment. We would fall asleep whenever we chose, and I'm sure with whomever we wanted to spend the night. Yes, people had sex, but even that was gentle, quiet, and discreet. Occasionally, someone might turn over and bump into a couple being a little too acrobatic or noisy, and there would be a grunt, or people might move away from a couple that made too much to do about their lovemaking. Passionate lovemaking between young people often took place during the day, outside in a more hidden spot in the jungle, I was told. In the morning, we might not all wake up at the same time, but those who woke up early would lay quietly, waiting for more people to awaken, and somehow, as if by magic, we would find ourselves sitting in a circle, rubbing our eyes, stretching the kinks out. One person would say, I saw a bird, a beautiful bird. Someone else would say, yes, I too saw a bird. What kind of bird was it, another would ask. And so they would create a story with images from our dreams. They did not think that they were sharing dreams as we think of dreams. The Senoi believe that the world we live in is a shadow world and that the real world is behind it. At night, they believe, we visit the real world. In the morning, we share what we saw and learned there. The story that was created around the memories that four or five people brought back from the real world set the tone for that day. Sometimes one of the group would take the lead in soliciting input from each person in the room. How about you? What do you remember? Other times, the story flowed without help. A few times, no story emerged at all. It was very obvious that when a more or less coherent story was created around the images we shared, we who had slept in that shelter would live that story that day. Usually, the stories were simple. A bird had shown the way to a tree that was bearing fruit. Later that day, some of us would find that tree, and of course it did have ripe fruit. Or the story was about a bad storm, so people would stay close to the shelters all day, and yes, there was a big storm in the late afternoon. Occasionally, the stories were about things that affected all of them, all the people in the settlement, or perhaps even all the Sinai. In that case, they would make it a point to share with the people who had slept in other shelters as soon as possible. It might take all morning to disseminate that story to everyone. I did not witness any attempts to call a meeting, but it was obvious that when a serious story came out of a morning's dream telling, all the people in the settlement would eventually hear that story. I learned about all of this very early during the time that I spent with the Sonoy. It was in what I thought of as the first village, the first settlement I visited, that an important story emerged from what I brought back from the real world during one of my nights there. It made a big impression on me because part of the story came from my dream. It was a particularly vivid dream about one of my family's dogs, an all black mongrel that seemed to have come with the house we rented in the suburbs of Kuala Lumpur. We had tried to get rid of that dog, but he would not leave. We tried chasing him away, he kept coming back. So we adopted him and called him Jaga, which is Malay for guard or protector. I do not remember that Jaga was a particularly good watchdog, but he was around and he goes out to tell his dream, and then it's a, just an absolutely fascinating book from Robert Wolfe's Original Wisdom. On the line with us is Congressman Ro Khanna. He represents the 17th District of California. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He's a member of the House Armed Services Committee and the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, Khanna. K-H-A-N-N-A is his website. And you can tweet him at Rep. Ro, R-O Khanna. A national Progressive Town Hall meeting taking your calls. Congressman Khanna, welcome back to the program.
7: Thank you, Tom. Really grateful to be back on. Obviously, a... Challenging time for the Congress in the world.
2: It truly is. I'm curious your thoughts on what's going on right now in Ukraine.
7: Well, it's awful. I mean, uh, the scenes are uh, horrific. Uh, the uh, aggression is totally uh, illegal. Uh, the targeting of civilians uh, is uh, uh, unconscionable. Uh, I support uh, the president's uh, economic sanctions. I do think. Uh, Senator Sanders has pointed out we need to actually seize some of the assets of the oligarchs in the United States. uh, Their uh, millions of dollars of property and be Mm. aggressive in doing that. Entire floors of Trump Tower. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Uh, You know, remarkable to me that Trump is still out there praising war crimes and calling him a genius a week before. One thing I think we can do a better job of at at this moment is to link the investments in renewable energy and climate to national security. The reality is we're too dependent on petro-states like Saudi Arabia, like Iran, like Russia, like Venezuela. The goal shouldn't be to beg a different petro-state every time we, we run into a conflict with one of them. The goal should be that we should have the renewable energy electric vehicles and alternative energy in our country, that climate is actually a national security issue. That is something that we need to do a better job of. And then finally, I'm working with Sheldon Whitehouse on a windfall tax uh, on some of these extraordinary all profits if they continue to fleece consumers at the pump.
2: Yeah, it was a, in fact, it was a tweet from Ed Markey. I'm trying to find it here as we're talking. Yeah, he's, he said, here's a fact you won't hear on Fox News today. Exxon, Chevron, and Conoco made $46 billion in profit last year. Now they're using 40% of those profits for stock buybacks. In other words, they're recycling it into the pockets of their executives. Uh, he says, big oil is raking it in, raising prices, and taking advantage of the war in Ukraine to push for more drilling so true.
7: Yeah. I mean, look, the the windfall tax is a simple concept. If you're charging over, let's say, 70 bucks a barrel, then to have the windfall tax and and send that either as checks to to, to working families uh, so that it can cover the five or six bucks a gas that they're having to pay, or invested in renewable energy, but don't give it, allow well, these companies to make extraordinary profits and just enrich their shareholders. So Sheldon is uh, taking the lead in, in putting together a, a draft, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to working with him on on that concept, and a no- number of other countries have done that. I was in uh, uh, England with the speaker, and we met with uh, uh, Keir Starmer, the, the Labour leader, and uh, they've proposed it. Labour in England has proposed it, and the European Union I just read today uh, is uh, pushing for something that would allow uh, all of their members to to have a windfall tax that then goes towards working families or towards uh, uh, renewable energy.
2: Yeah, it would be a good thing. This is this is uh, you know what Carter proposed in '79 to, to fund the, the nation nation. for a solar bank.
7: So, uh,
2: yeah, anything else you want to point out before we pick up phone calls?
7: No, I think that those two are the focus for me for this week is the Markey bill on banning the the Russian uh, uh, oil imports and the uh, Sheldon bill on uh, uh, a windfall tax. And I guess the only other thing is to fund government. Well, that would be a good plan.
2: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let's pick up some calls here. Glenn in uh, Capistrano, California. Hey, Glenn, you're on the air with Congressman Conor.
3: My question is about Governor Newsom. Do you think he'll be reelected? And we've had a few oil spills down here on the beaches in Huntington Beach where they have those oil platforms. What's the future of fracking and oil in in Newsom in California? Thank you.
7: Uh well, Glenn, uh, two things. I do think the governor will be reelected. I think he's the only major Democrat running, so he's probably not going to have much competition. I do hope on the second term he does two things. One focuses on single-payer. I was very disappointed that uh, Ash Kalra single-payer bill in California was pulled. If we can't do single-payer in California, uh, it's going to be hard to— Uh, make the case to do it in other states. So the governor ran on it the first time. Uh, I imagine he'll run on it the second time. And uh, there's no reason to not move forward. The second chance, uh, the second point uh, is something I've been working with Greenpeace on uh, called the last chance campaign, which is to say no new fossil fuel permits in California. Uh, And uh, I think Barbara Lee and I were the only two members of California's delegation to support it. Uh, But it also says that you need to have a residential buffer of 2,000 miles from the the drilling, because a lot of this drilling is, as you know, is done near poorer communities, near black and brown communities. So I'm hopeful the governor can focus on that on his second term. I mean, he's going to have no political uh, constraints uh, to to focus on these two issues.
2: Did you say 2,000-mile buffer?
7: No, sorry, 2,000 feet. 2,000, 2000 feet. feet. I okay. misspoke. All right, thank you. Misspoke. Yeah, good. I, I good. thought good. got a, Appreciate that correction. <laughs> no, it's all good. Uh, Lawrence. You, and, you, you know, Fox News will have that clip for, for playing. I,
2: I know. <laughs> that's that's why I wanted to catch it. Lawrence in Berkeley, California. You're on the air with Representative Khanna. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Tom. Hi, Mr. Khanna. Um, You know, during the Second World War
1: we uh, discontinued building cars and built tanks and planes at, at an incredible speed. And what I want to ask you now is that if we did something like that with renewable energy, not that we'd stop building cars, but we could have the same intensity of building, you know, solar and wind as we did in the Second World War, building tanks and planes, how long would it take until we no longer needed foreign oil and until Europe, more to the point, would no longer need foreign oil.
7: Well, I think we can do a lot in getting our electric vehicle infrastructure built out and getting renewables built out and uh, using the 40 percent of land that currently is used in the United States for cattle grazing. Forty percent of our land is used for basically uh, raising cattle to have some of that uh, be used for uh, carbon uh, sinks uh, in terms of agriculture, having people farmers be paid to, to, to remove carbon. If we had a, a full-out assault on uh, on climate, uh, we can make a big dent, and we could have a big dent in terms of the renewable energy, uh, I- in terms of uh, what that means uh, for our uh, independence. The challenge is we haven't had that commitment. Now, the Build Bag Better bill, $400 billion of tax credits and investments in solar, in wind, in geothermal, in hydro in green hydrogen, all of that is the type of uh, step towards the moonshot we need. And and we that's why we have to link it, I think, to what's going on in Russia.
2: President Biden pitched Build Back Better again during his State of the Union address. Is it not fully dead until or <laughs> unless we get a couple of more Democratic senators? Uh, or am I missing something here?
7: Well, it's dead in its original form. It's dead in the version that passed the House. That. Really is a shame because it would have been a major, major commitment to the working class. Uh, That form is dead. But there's still things that can pass, and two of those things climate ought to be a no-brainer. I mean, I don't understand how you can't see what's going on with Russia and our dependence on oil and not say the solution here is to have massive investment in green energy. That should be a no-brainer. And then universal child care, I mean, universal preschool. And of that, I think we can get 51 votes on. So that's the hope.
2: Uh-huh. Very cool. Uh, we'll be back with more of your calls for the congressman in just a moment. Kevin, listening on uh, KNYP in Santa Rosa, California. You're on the air with Representative Connor.
7: Hi. Um, I want to know what your current thinking is on the feasibility of using the 14th Amendment to prevent uh, seditionists from serving in the U.S. government. I'm open to, to looking at it, Kevin. I, I uh, heard Bruce Ackerman, a law professor. In fact, I have him uh, a call scheduled with him today uh, on uh... What the possibility is, and what voted requires in the House and the Senate, I mean uh can it really be done just if by if the simple majority, and then what can the Supreme Court do about it uh but i i I certainly think we have to look at uh all, all options to hold Trump accountable.
2: Howard in Vernon Hills, Illinois. you're on the air with Representative Connor
4: Yeah, good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, just curious, would you consider reopening the XL pipeline and I think for two reasons, one, to cover the shortfall of oil from Russia, and the other maybe it would help to unify our side with the right
7: well i 'm not for that i I appreciate the concern uh, first of all, as I understand it the Keystone Pipeline would not be operational for a couple of years. So it's not like suddenly you, you turn it on and uh, you have some massive increase in, in oil. Second, I think we go after the oil profits uh, in terms of getting the price down for uh, for consumers. Uh, and this should be an uh, incentive for massive investment in, uh, in renewable energy. So we ought to provide relief to consumers uh, and make the long-term investments in renewable energy. I don't think that's a better thing than Long term.
2: Jess in Cambridge, Minnesota, listening on KTNF. Jess, you are on the air with Congressman uh, Kana.
7: Hello there. Um, I am curious, having owned uh, three Prii, multiple of Priuses, and driven uh, over 460,000 miles in them, and in other hybrid vehicles, is there any way we could divert part of the defense budget for incentives for electric and hybrid vehicles? Uh, and the reason why I mentioned the Defense Department, because I've thought about this for years, is that to the extent that we're indebted to the uh, petrol oligarchs, this is a defense issue. And it I think it should be addressed as that, and I think it should be funded that way.
2: National security issue.
7: Hmm. Yeah. I I agree with you completely. And I, I think the defense uh, bill is one area where we can have significant impact on... Uh, investments in renewable. We can increase the goals of the Navy, Army, uh, and Air Force to get to uh, 50% or eventually 100% reductions in CO2 emissions. We can have them invest more in renewables, and that should be a significant part of our national security strategy. So I think that's exactly a a place where we can have some of these investments.
2: Sammy in Imperial, Missouri, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
0: Oh, well, thank you for taking my call. You know, I grew up with the fear of a nuclear war, and now I'm not so much afraid of that as I am cybersecurity war. recently heard that Trump had cut a bunch of uh, offices and, and people who were working on trying to increase our cybersecurity. And my fear is, like, Russia taking out our power plants, our water supply, and our whole country would just turning to chaos. And I was just wondering if you knew what, if anything, being done – to increase our cybersecurity.
7: It is a a great question. We need to do more. When we come to the cybersecurity of our most sensitive weapons, we have done a good job. But you're absolutely right. Our critical infrastructure, our electricity, our water, uh, that is very vulnerable, as is a lot of our financial system. Uh, And we need to have a whole-of-government approach, a Manhattan Project, for investing in uh, cybersecurity as opposed to just continuing to invest in legacy uh, defense. And so I I think you're right to, to, to sound that concern.
2: John, in Jeffersonville, Ohio, just a, just a minute to a break, John. You got a quick one here for Congressman Connor?
3: Yeah, real, real quick. Uh, I'd like to see Biden go to the United Nations and address
5: the world and say we have a humanity problem. It's, it's humanity that we're fighting for, not just one nation now. We need to address dealing with nuclear weapons. Putin's uh, Putin's got a lot more to uh, live for than, than, you know, he's got millions. He's got family, too. Mm -hmm. And at some point, we've got to. I mean, if
2: he says, look, I'm
7: going to. Let's let's get the
2: response, John. We're running out of time. Thank you.
7: Well, John, I'm all for going to the United Nations, and I'm all for doing everything we can for the ukrainian people we're going to have 10 billion dollars of aid the president is working on how to get uh, them the arms so that they can make a uh, make a fight but what i don't think is that we ought to have some no flies on where we're risking shooting down uh, russian planes. i'm just not for escalating in that way and i think the president's been prudent and wise to avoid that
2: we'll be right back
0: Figure Lending, LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org.
2: Dan in Roxy, Mississippi, you are on the air with Representative Connor.
6: Well, I've got two questions. One's got to do with oil, one's got to do with the joy. Why is the joy still in there? I I, I can't figure that out. And and the reason this is so important to me is I used to run an eBay business, and I like so many others, thousands of us, left eBay because of the joy. Because our packages
7: wouldn't get delivered, we were having to refund money,
6: and the issue's still ongoing, and nobody's doing anything
7: you're absolutely right on the frustration and i hear you and i believe that the new board will act but until the, it's not in congress's authority it's not in the president's authority it's in the new boards or is a new board uh, they have the ability now to take action
2: back in i forget the year but sometime in the 70s or 80s as i recall the post office was removed from the cabinet from the president's cabinet it was uh, no, it, it became no longer a federal agency, and it became a public-private corporation like Amtrak. And I think the consensus at the time was this this was step one. I think it, it was 1971, actually, that this happened. That this was step, uh, so that would be, uh, uh, what, Jerry Ford? Or no, Richard Nixon. This was step one toward privatizing it. Do you support moving, you know, deprivatizing it, uh, re- removing it as... You know, ending it as a standalone corporation and bringing it back as a government agency?
7: Absolutely. I mean, I think that the post office. It should be the paradigmatic uh, government function. I mean, this is like public schools, and it, it's something that works very well. I mean, it, think about it. How difficult is it for about 50 cents to get a piece of mail from California all the way to Washington, D.C. or to Florida? That's quite remarkable that that works and that people are able to do that. And it's a leveling force in a society that's had way too much privatization. So I would be for that.
2: Dan in Midland, Michigan, you're on the air with Congressman
6: Connor. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Elon Musk recently tweeted that we need to increase oil and gas output immediately. Extraordinary times demand extraordinary measures. What's your thoughts on that?
7: I disagree with him in terms of what's going to be effective. What we need to do is reduce the price at the pump. And what we need to do to do that is make sure that these big oil companies aren't pocketing billions of dollars and engaged in stock buybacks and that they either they're taxed on the windfall or they are incentivized to bring down the price. The reality is that is what's going on. And then we need to be investing in real energy security, which is renewables or alternative sources of energy.
2: Congressman, the last 15 seconds, anything you want us to be paying attention to as we go into this next week?
7: Well, I would just, uh, there's a huge debate that's going to go on in this country beyond the horror at Putin, and that is, do we adopt the view of the Republican senators and have a license for the oil companies to drill, or do we say we're going to double down on renewable energy and long-term investment in energy independence? We've got to win that fight as progressives, and we're, we're fighting that right now in the public sphere. So anyone who can be active on that, that would be great. Amen.
2: Congressman Connor, thanks so much for dropping by.
7: Thank you. Always love it. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Mark in Ocala, Florida. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today?
6: Hey, Tom. Hello, Midwesterner and an advocate for peace. But I think the uh, current circumstances may call for an aggressive seizing of the moment by we taking the initiative. We can't tiptoe around about it. We can't trickle ourselves into the situation. We need to treat Vladimir Putin as an Osama bin Laden uh, who has an army and capacity to uh, destroy uh, at gunpoint, these uh, nuclear power plants are being held hostage with workers, uh, with uh, who's to say what type of rest, what kind of duration they're under. And if the plants catch on fire, Tom, for the listener's sake, and we won't be any surprise to yourself, that if the plants have a meltdown, that, that uh, radioactive debris uh, can end up in the stratosphere and it can land anywhere in the world. Yes. as as it, as it has in the past, and and he's made some he's made some public threats. So he's made public threats directed at the West. He's kind of benign about them. So my argument is, I think we need to go after him personally. and We need to uh, literally uh, find him in the Ural Mountains where he's probably hiding out. So I just read an article that his fourth or fifth girlfriend, whatever she is, and their love child is in uh, Switzerland. Right. That's a separate issue, but. I've never listened to you, Tom, as long as you've been on the air where I didn't agree with your perspective, and I'm not calling to disagree with you. You haven't really made a strong stance on it. But my, my background as a former Marine and a, as a former city of Miami cop is I'm, I'm a pretty aggressive person. I think this calls for an aggressive action, and I think we need to take the lead. We are a country that has the ability to lead and lead by example. Now, if we were to do uh, float float our nuclear uh subs uh, up up close to, from various perspectives. The missiles would take a lot shorter time to get there, obviously. And also, if we were to use cyber attacks and shut down their command and control structure simultaneously, and then also have bombers waiting in the air, conventional bombers, Tom, to hit whatever else would need to be hit, have a uh, trifecta, so to speak. And the thing is, we wouldn't have to jeopardize our troops, which would may may be simultaneously needed in Taiwan, so it would it be a limited uh, attack? It wouldn't be like you know uh, uh, block their borders off. Russia is kind of a large country to block their borders, as the Russians are finding out with a uh, smaller country known as Ukraine. So yeah. blocking borders would gobble up our people. But I think if we hit them hard with some uh, some very uh, strong right hand punches and went literally right after Vladimir Putin in any circumstances, then. It would scare the hell out of the bureaucrats, um, the oil guard, you know. The, the, I get everything the
2: you say, Mark. Like, let, me, let me be very clear about my thoughts yeah. and position on this. I, you know, okay. I've been an advocate of peace my whole entire life. I mean, I, I... Uh, I The first time I got arrested in my life, it was protesting against the Vietnam War in East Lansing, Michigan in 1967
6: or 68. And you saved my life, Tom. You saved my life. I'm a little bit younger than you, and I'm honest enough to know that the physical courage that you displayed as a son of Michigan, wherever you protested, and I believe you probably protested, in california americans protested and i'm not mean to interrupt you tom your generation your people and vietnam veterans that protested literally saved my life but i want you to know that
2: well thank you mark so with that caveat that i have my whole entire life been an advocate for peace i also you know i i'm not old enough to remember world war ii I, but my dad told me stories <laughs> you know i mean he he signed up for world war ii he didn't fight by the time he got to japan the the war was over but you know he was gung-ho ready to and there is a point you know when a bully comes up to you and starts threatening you and and holding a fist in front of your face and then starts putting his other hand into your pocket and and, and stealing what you've got there is a point where you punch that bully in the face or kick him in the nuts as hard as you possibly can it's really the only way you deal with bullies now that said This bully has nuclear weapons that could end all life on Earth. I doubt that he's willing to use them, but I'm frankly not willing to take that chance. Here's how I'm seeing this playing out. If we, and by we I'm talking about the Western coalition, the Western world, the United States, and, and the NATO countries by and large, if we can continue to infiltrate weaponry into Ukraine, that is actively being used to take down Russian. We've shot down, you know, dozens of Russian planes so far. We've we've taken out tanks. We've taken out columns. We, they have killed thousands 300%. of Russian soldiers. If we can continue doing that, and if and if Ukraine can continue to stand up for this. For a little while longer, and I realize the the the, the price is just god awful. I mean, I'm seeing the same pictures on TV. Everybody else is, and 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 right. occasionally, you know, am on the edge of tears around it. But if this sure. can if this can last for a little longer, Putin is losing. I mean, that's the thing he has been losing now since he launched this war, and every day he loses more. And pretty soon, he's going to lose the support of his own people. He's going to lose the support of his own high command. He's going to lose the support of his own military. And when that happens, he's going to be in really deep trouble. And and I think that we are days away from that. And I think that's why when they met on the border there between Belarus and, and Ukraine, um, yep. When they met there, the Russians said, "Okay, okay, we'll stop if you'll just give us Crimea, Donbass, and uh, right. promise never to join NATO." And Ukraine is saying, "Screw that!" Right? I mean, it so is, far, right. Ukraine is like holding firm, and I think that if they continue to hold firm, now I, you know, I'm not opposed to Ukraine saying, "Okay, we, you know, let, let's let's just hold a truce," because you know, to stop the death, right? To stop the blood. But that said, I think if they can hang on for another week or so, probably at the most, this is going to build up to the point where Putin absolutely has lost control completely and his presidency is cooked. I think we are dealing with a man who thinks the same as Adolf Hitler. He was perfectly willing to engage in mass slaughter in Aleppo, in Syria, reducing that town to rubble. It took him uh, nearly a month to do it, just just steady bombing, killing thousands, tens of thousands of civilians. He did the same thing in Grozny, you know, when the Chechen area of Russia tried to declare their own independence, and he just flattened that city. And frankly, the only way you deal with dictators and bullies is to punch them in the nose or kick them in the nuts. In other words, take them on head on or take them on in a way that they're not expecting, but hurts a lot. I hate to, I guess, sexualize these kinds of things. I don't mean it that way. But I think we're in the, you know, kick them where it counts area right now. It's not a direct confrontation, but it is causing them to fold up. And I I, I think we need to do more of it. Mark, thank you for the call. And all around the world, we've got companies that are saying we're not going to trade with Russia. Russia's, you know, Putin is going down. Make no mistake. Karen in Oakland. Hey, Karen, what's up?
0: hey tom you know we all live in a global village right yeah so we're all affected by this craziness but i want to agree with everyone who say words matter words do matter i was writing in my um blog the other day and i wrote russians invasion but thanks to your caller yesterday he said putin's invasion because i did question that as i was writing it but i wanted to also make an addition to that i wanted to say also, against, and this is how I ended my paragraph, and against the majority of the will of the Russian people. And that applies here, too. We should say that all the time, yeah. you know, against the majority of the will of the American people, you know, and women. These Republicans are setting up all these laws against most of us disagree with. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I I'm do. Terrible on the, I'm terrible on the air, but yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah I completely get it, Karen, and, and I completely agree with you. And, and I don't think that the average Russian person wants to have this war. And I don't think most Americans want to have a war either. I mean, if if Putin just stopped and went away, you know, maybe some economic punishments or war crimes tribunal or something like that. But fighting wars is there are no winners in wars. I mean, uh,
0: here's one um, more word. Global life support. Okay.
2: there you go. go. Karen, I got to run. I'm sorry, but thank you very much. It's great to hear from you. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Netherkin, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, El bum (laughs) Connor Herrero, and Carne Verde. Thank you for the folks who helped make this program work. Get out there, get active, be good to yourself and the people around you, and pray for peace in Ukraine and around the world. We'll see you on Monday.